Oh, may the Lord give us such gratitude in our hearts this morning. Turn to Song of Solomon, the song which is Solomon's chapter 5, just before the prophecy of Isaiah. You'll find this shorter book in the Old Testament, Song of Solomon. We have been considering this book as we come to the Lord's table for quite some time now, using it as a springboard for us, helping me and my thoughts to be very focused on the Lord's table and to aid you in your consideration of what Christ has done for you as we have it in this book. We're going to take time to go back to verse 12 of chapter 4. It was my intention to deal with the opening eight verses and use verse 1 as kind of introductory to the uh, rest of chapter 5 that we would plan to deal with, but we're we're going to limit our thoughts on verse 1 of chapter 5. So we read from verse 12 of chapter 4, just to read into chapter 5 and the first verse So Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 12. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. My plants are an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, camphor, spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come thou south. Blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden, and eat his pleasant fruits. I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with spice, with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O friends. Drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. Amen. May the Lord seal to our hearts His word and give us the light that we need as we consider it this morning. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, we need help always when we come to Thy word. We are glad that that help is freely available to us, that Thou hast not left us alone. Thou hast sent to us Thy Spirit. Thy Spirit helps us to understand the truth and to walk therein. And so at this hour, this moment, when we give consideration to Thy Word, it is necessary that we are given and granted the glorious ministry of the Spirit of God. I pray for him to descend in power and glory upon us. I pray for his sweet influence upon every heart and mind, so that whether it be thy people or those still blinded and lost in sin and unbelief, that there may be a ministry appropriate for every need. Spirit of God, my teacher be, showing the things of Christ to me. 
We pray now that thou wilt help us and fill all thy people with the Spirit. Thou wilt be with us as we consider thy truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the verses that precede chapter 5 that we have read, we've already seen that the bride is described as a garden. Such a description is very apt for the church and specifically for the child of God. It describes for us the experience that we have being born in sin and yet enjoying the redemptive mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Without Christ, we are as those in a wilderness. We are subject to our environment. We're not in control of what's going on. And so the weeds that grow in our lives, the the way we are conditioned is determined by what is going on around us. So if certain weeds are manifesting themselves in our environment around us, inevitably those same weeds will be in our lives too. And perhaps even the graces, the the common graces that may be reflected even in those that are not redeemed may also be found in us because we are a product of our environment. This is our experience. We love what the world loves. We produce what the world produces. This is what we are without Jesus Christ, a product of our environment. Now, as an aside, that's a very important truth to understand that is generally seen in the world. I remember reading some years ago an article where they were, the consideration was being given to the veterans that came back from Vietnam, I think it was, if I remember correctly. There was a concern, a lament, that as soldiers would come back from Vietnam, they would continue to remain on the substances that they were taking while they were out there. Addictive substances, drugs, narcotics of various sorts that helped them cope with all that they were facing and going through that many of them depended upon while they were there. The belief was that whenever they would come back from Vietnam that you'd have this, this saturation, all these men that would be drug addicts living on the streets of America dealing with their addictions and their problems. What what, what were they going to do about it? What was the solution to this problem? But what they discovered, looking back at least, what they realized, what the study was dealing with, or at least the article that was drawing from the study, what they realized was that once the men came back to a different environment, when they returned to their wives, to their parents, to their communities, that the addictive behaviors changed. Their behaviors changed in terms of what they thought they would be dependent upon, were no longer needed by them because they were in a different environment. And the lesson that was drawn from that study, the application of it was in relation to addiction, that the number one factor, the most important factor in delivering oneself or someone else from addictive behaviors of whatever the sort might be is change the environment. They can't be helped while they remain in the same environment. Something in where they're planted needs to be changed. They need to be transplanted, uprooted, 
placed among a different environment. This is part of what the Lord does. It's part of the reason why giving oneself to Christ, there's other factors, of course, and we understand the power of the Holy Ghost, but it's also why there are practical measures given to those that are redeemed, those that are saved. The Lord Jesus does not draw us to Himself and then leave us as wild flowers to defend ourselves. He places us among others that love His name so that the flowers, the produce that they bring forth gets pollinated into our lives and we learn from them. We are challenged by their Christ-likeness. We, we learn from their Spirit-led behaviors. We are helped and protected by how they get on. And so the church of Jesus Christ becomes a refuge for men and women that may even be coming from a background of addiction. Like all gardens, the reason we know they are gardens is because they are distinct from the surrounding environment. They are removed, or at least there is a perimeter or some indication that they are not like the rest of the land, as we said last time. And we, 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 we drew from the verses that we considered, verses 12 through to the end of chapter 4, that we are protected by two things as the church of Jesus Christ, as the bride of our Savior. We're protected by two things. First, the Lord's claim on us, and we'll be seeing more of that this morning, and also the Lord's, Lord's curb around us. He curbs us. He, he protects us. His sovereign rule delivers us from His and our enemies, and a sanctifying grace rules and reigns in our hearts to deliver us from our own sins, the corruptions that come from within. For you see, yes, you can change certain aspects, as has been seen in history. You can change certain aspects. You can take a man and put him in a monastery, and certain aspects of his behavior will change. His environment has changed. It will, it will definitely make an impact upon his behavior and his nature and in certain areas, but fundamentally, the sins will still be there. The carnal desires will still rage within the soul, and so sin very much though the outward behavior may be changed, sin very much will reign in the mortal body without grace. We also saw then that as the Lord's garden, we are productive. We saw that in verses 13 through 15. And then finally, pleasant. As the Lord's garden, we will be pleasant. And this pleasantness is to be diffused to the world. Awake, O north wind, and come thou south. Blow upon my garden that the spices thereof may flow out. There should be this dispersion of the pleasantness of the church to the world. But also, the church then in turn wants her pleasantness to be enjoyed by Christ. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. Let him come. This is the yearning for fellowship with Christ. This is not merely that the church would exist as what Christ has intended, at least in part, it's not solely for the purpose of being light onto the world, of emanating the light, emanating the truth, getting Christ to the nations. We are not simply about behavior that shares the gospel. That's fundamental. That is crucial. But also as we traverse our experience on the earth, 
giving the gospel to the world, reaching souls for Christ, taking the banner of the cross to the nations. While we do that, there ought to be also this ongoing fellowship, this cry from the heart of the bride, let my beloved come into his garden. I need his fellowship. I'm not content with the prospect that simply I'm here on the earth to testify of Christ, tell of Jesus Christ, and then my fellowship will begin in eternity. I want fellowship now. And this is where the church has her greatest power, is when the winds of revival, when the outpouring of the Spirit so blow upon the garden of the church, so influence the church of Jesus Christ, that in her communication of the gospel, she shares Christ as a felt Christ, as a known Christ, that the greatest preachers, testifiers, witnesses for Jesus Christ are those walking in fellowship with the Savior Himself. So we come then to verse 1 of chapter 5 which we will consider under the title, The Enjoyment of Christ's Garden. The Enjoyment of Christ's Garden. And first to note here, an answer to prayer. An answer to prayer. I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. Eat, O friends, drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. But noting that first that opening line, I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. Is this not that which she prayed for? Is this not the desire of her heart, let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits? Chapter 5 verse 1 begins with an answer to prayer. The Savior's willingness, indeed his delight and joy, to see the cry of the heart that goes heavenward, that he would come to the sinful fallen sons of Adam. That he doesn't stand at a distance, that he doesn't leave you to yourself, but he comes mercifully according to the cry of the heart. The Lord answers our prayer. So let me say to you, if you have come this morning and you're ill-prepared for communion and the lament of heart is, should I even take communion this morning? Should I even sit at the Lord's table? Am I even rightly prepared to take the bread and take the cup? Have I any, any right to sit and participate in these sacraments? If that question is there, child of God, let me say to you, that Christ will not hesitate to come to the cry that even is heavenward directed from your heart this moment. When you long for Him, let my beloved come into His garden. I invite Christ afresh into my life. I want the Lord Jesus to reign. I want Him to be in fellowship with me and I with Him. I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. Oh, child of God, do not doubt his willingness to come. Certainly our Lord Jesus will at times create a felt distance between us and himself. He does that for certain reasons and purposes. 
sometimes we are mystified by it. But on this occasion, you see the clear response, the clear answer to prayer, the willingness of the Lord to come. So I urge you, before we go any further, I urge you, invite Christ. Ask Christ afresh by His Spirit to minister to your dull heart, to raise your affections, to subdue your sins, to minister to your needs. Isaiah 55 verse 6 Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. This is, not, this is not an invitation that is given in vain. It is not given to the Lord's people to seek the Lord while he may be found so that he can mock them. They're to seek the Lord while he may be found because if they seek the Lord while he may be found, they will find him. They will find him. Call ye upon him while he is near. Call you upon him now. End time. Don't delay. Don't wait. Don't. Those of you backslidden, cold at heart, say to yourself, I'm not in the right frame to come into this. I'm therefore not in the right frame to, to participate in the Lord's table. No. That fellowship can be restored from the heart that genuinely cries, Dear God, dear Lord Jesus Christ, come to me in this moment. I need fellowship. I need the sweetness of your word. It may be with that cry that goes up heavenward even now, that somewhere along the line, even in our consideration of the Word of God, He will come to you. He will condescend to you. He will give you a word that will quicken your spirit, break your heart, and rule your affections in His mercy. You know all too well the language of Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 and following, "'For I know the thoughts that I think toward you,' saith the Lord." thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. Oh, do you see it? That the Lord's mercy, His affections, His consideration of His people, amidst all the judgment that was ongoing, there was indications that yet, if you will only seek me, mercy will be enjoyed. So if you consider my thoughts toward you, that my longings, my long-term view is not an evil view. My long-term view is one of peace. Oh, you're amidst a time of 70 years of judgment, of difficulty, of hardship, but it will not last. And for those of you who seek me, I will come to you. I will be found of you. Then shall you call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. Oh, certainly it has in the context that application to Israel, that need that they would not despair, that there was no future for them. And indeed, this word was given to some, and they would not see the day when God would hear their cry, and God would gather them again, and in mercy bring them to that location. And certainly, it has even a future prospect of the Lord continually gathering His people. But the point is this. When we seek Him, it will not be in vain. Let my beloved come into His garden and eat his pleasant fruits. I am coming to my garden, my sister, my spouse. 
It is not in vain. It is not his desire to hold back in coming to the heart that longs for assistance of his presence and grace. Let's see this historically in a particular portion. Second Chronicles chapter 15. Turn to Second Chronicles 15. Read a few verses that help us see in another portion just the difference that has made when the Lord's people seek Him. I'm telling you now, child of God, that all your needs, all your needs, everything that truly is foundationally what you need more than anything else begins with a seeking of the Lord, a deliberate, purposeful getting before God. So that if there's one thing you take away this morning, it is this. The way of recovery is alone with God, seeking God. Take that to your own heart. Take that to the heart of those you know that may be falling away or at least extremely discouraged. Every one of us, as much as we are to minister to one another, we are limited in bringing any measure of help. The best thing that anyone who's trying to lift themselves from the doldrums and encourage their spirits amidst difficulties and trials, the most important thing for them to do is seek the Lord. And there's no telling what that may do. So you see it here in Second Chronicles 15. Let's read the opening verses. And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and went out to meet Asa and said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you, while ye be with him. And if ye seek him, he will be found of you. But if ye forsake him, he will forsake you. Now for a long season Israel hath been without the true God, and without a teaching priest, and without law. When they in their trouble did turn unto the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was fond of them. And in those times there was no peace to him that went out, nor to him that came in, but great vexations were upon all the inhabitants of the countries. Nation was destroyed of nation and city of city, for God did vex them with all adversity. Is there a certain application to our day? So what are we to do? Do we just sit and watch the news and lament and complain at one another? Be strong, therefore, and let not your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. And when Asa heard these words and the prophecy of Oded the prophet, he took courage and put away the abominable idols out of all the land of Judah and Benjamin, and out of the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim, and renewed the altar of the Lord, which was before the porch of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin, and the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh, and out of Simeon. For they fell to him out of Israel in abundance, when they saw that the Lord as God was with them. So they gathered themselves together at Jerusalem in the third month, in the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa, and they offered unto the Lord the same time, of all, or of the spoil which they had brought, 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek 
the Lord God of their fathers. This, this is it explained, beloved. This is the believer's life in a nutshell, seeking God. What's the Christian life? Summarize the Christian life. Seeking God. To seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul, that whosoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. And they swear unto the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting, with trumpets and with cornets. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with all their whole desire. And he was fond of them. And the Lord gave them rest round about. So many of the problems, they are solved by seeking the Lord. Let me say to you that the most offensive political statement to this world is this, Jesus Christ is Lord. I know people like to say, you know, don't get involved in politics. Christians should stay out of politics. You, you can't. If you affirm Jesus Christ as Lord, how can you stay out of politics? How? I mean, you can try to stay out of it in terms of I'm not getting actively involved in what's going on in my community or whatever. That's fine. Understand your place and do what you want. But as soon as you declare to the world Jesus Christ is Lord, you have made a declaration of sovereignty over the nations. And if anything is political, that's political. And this is the hope of the church. This is what needs to come from us, from this church, from every child of God, even at this moment. This side, that side, voting for this one, the other one. As I said on Wednesday night, the response to everything that's going on comes in repentance before God, or what we're saying here, seeking God. And our profession, our declaration is Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Lord. And we will not be satisfied until men and women bow the knee and acknowledge him as Lord. Our work is not done until that happens. (laughs) That means our work continues. And we build for the day that we will never see, as Chalmers put it. But we continue on declaring to the world Jesus Christ is Lord. And everyone is subservient to him. So therefore, what are we to do? What are we to do? What is the lesson? What are we being told this morning? Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. And it will not be in vain, neither for you individually or even at times, when God is pleased to so unite the hearts of His church together around a common theme of the outpouring of His Spirit. He may even do something marvelous in a community. Yea, even in a nation. But, but, let us not get ahead of ourselves. We begin with ourselves, seeking the Lord, seeking the Lord. And it will not be in vain. It will not be in vain. That is encouragement this morning. It is not ever in vain. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. Praise his name. He's come. He comes to the heart. You, dear sister, dealing with your trials, your uncertainties, Christ is there to come into your heart. You, dear brother, facing uncertainties, 
of various sorts or particular kinds that maybe no one knows about, Christ will come and answer the prayer. He will. And answer the prayer. He doesn't look at the labels that we put upon one another. He doesn't look at the status. He doesn't consider the bank account. He doesn't look at the connections that we have politically in terms of his response in this way. He sees us as people in need, as sinners, to whom he has offered his son as a sacrifice that we might have fellowship with him. So we have an answer to prayer. Secondly, an acknowledgement of possession. An acknowledgement of possession. This is tremendous. I am come into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. He acknowledges possession. The garden is his. And all that develops within it, again, is his. He takes ownership of it. It all belongs to him. Again, this is connected with what we considered in the previous verses. This is all the work of the Spirit of God. Christ can lay claim to it all. Now, how do we consider this? Well, I've you have three pairs here, and I'm, that's how I'm considering them this morning. The three pairs that are given. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb with my honey. That's the second pair. And then I have drunk my wine with my milk. So I want you to note three things here. First, he takes ownership of the perfections in their life. And this, specifically the perfections of Christ. Christ is taking ownership of the perfections of of himself in their lives. What do I mean? Well, one of the most remarkable aspects of our Lord Jesus Christ is his impeccable nature amidst the sufferings of this world and all the temptations of this world. Now, I've already considered this with you many months ago when we looked at myrrh, but I understand myrrh to be a reflection of the incorruptible nature of Jesus Christ. And this is the reason why. Psalm 45, which is very clearly and undisputable indisputable is the point that Psalm 45 is looking to Christ. And it speaks of him in Psalm 45 verse 8, all thy garments smell of myrrh. It is the aroma of his life without corruption, unlike anyone else. Christ was given myrrh at his birth, Matthew 2.11. Again, why? Because he was born without corruption. He was wrapped in it in his death, John 19.39. Why? Because still he was without corruption. He was born without sin, died without sin. He is without corruption. But here Christ gathers that which is similar in his people. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. And what he is doing here is he is gathering up and treasuring. He is enjoying, maybe that's the better word, because that's the title of the message. He is enjoying that which he sees in his people that reflects him. That is, responses to trials and the corruptions of this world that reflect how he would respond. Now, this is a very important point that Peter deals with 
in 1 Peter, as he deals with a people who are facing trials and difficulties and hardships, he points them to Christ as the one who, when reviled, reviled not again, and so on and so forth. And he's encouraging them to learn from Christ, to take their cue from Christ, to respond to the trials of life like Jesus Christ, so that they would not be corrupted, so that they would not be like the world, responding as the carnal man would to the trials and temptations. And so I see Christ taking ownership of that which reflects Him in His people. The graces that emanate, the myrrh and spice, that which indicates incorruption, though it is not. (laughs) Don't misunderstand me. No Christian has an impeccable nature in and of themselves. But He is enjoying. He is enjoying what is true perfectly about Himself. He is enjoying as he sees it in his people. Christ loves it, child of God. He loves it when he looks at you amidst his sovereignly appointed trial for you. And you respond just as he would. That brings him great delight. When you are faced with persecution, when you are dealing with temptation, when you face it as he faced it, he enjoys it. It brings delight to his soul. So he comes into the garden. He comes into the church and he gathers. He gathers up that. He treasures. How his people respond. How they reflect the perfections of Christ in their sufferings. This is one of the indications, actually, that we belong to him. It's a uniting experience that when we suffer, we are to suffer as Christians and we are to suffer in such a fashion that reflects that we belong to him. I've pointed this out before, but it is the easiest way I know to illustrate this point. That whenever Jesus Christ addressed Saul of Tarsus, who was persecuting the church, unable to reach Christ, ascended and seated at their Father's right hand. Unable to reach Christ, he turns his attention to his people. And Saul persecutes the people of God. And what does Jesus say? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Christ enters into the affliction of his people so that when you're persecuted, you're attacking him. And when you face your trials, he's right there as he was for the three Hebrew children. He's right there in the furnace with you. 
He is so joined to you that in all your trials, He is there. He's right there with you. He never leaves you alone. Absolutely. Ultimately. He is there. And He takes delight when He sees in His people, He gathers up the myrrh, the spice. That's indication that they are not being corrupted by the world or, and they are overcoming their own inner inclinations and carnality to reflect a purity in how they deal with trials. But Christ also takes ownership of the promises, not just the perfections that they reflect, but also the promises that He gives to them. Because the next pairing we have, I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. It is said of the Word of God in Psalm 19, verse 10, that the Word of God is sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. It is, you know. (laughs) I hope you're feeling it this morning because that would be awful if you're not. Such is the child of God's appetite for the Scripture that they can acknowledge it's sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. But that's not my point. The sweetest parts of Scripture are the promises of God. This is why thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions, I don't know, people read every day Spurgeon's checkbook of the Bank of Faith. Because every day Spurgeon brings a promise into view for the people of God, specifically texts that are promising explicitly or implicitly, something for the people of God, promises. And so Christians feed on them daily for their nourishment and encouragement along with the considerations and meditation of that dear man of God. The sweetest parts of Scripture are the promises of God. And like any good gardener, the Lord Jesus looks for growth in what He has planted and He comes to see that He might Himself enjoy what He has given So he has given to his church honey and honeycomb for their benefit. But in what way are these promises given for our benefit? If I was to ask you, what do the promises of God produce in your heart? What's the benefit of focusing on these treasures, this honey in the Scripture? Turn with me for a moment to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. Sorry, chapter 2. Pardon me. I'm looking at a different reference that I'll get to. I'm skipping ahead here. 1 Peter chapter 2. Pardon me, I am all over the place here. Second Peter chapter 1. I have too many references to Peter. 
<laughs> and I'm just glancing down. Second Peter chapter 1. Here we are. Verse 4, finally. Well, let, let's go back a little bit. Verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. So there are promises given. What we have in Christ are promises. Promises that are revealed in his word. But for what purpose are they given? That by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. To what end are these promises? To what purpose? Why are we to take the promises of God and to taste their sweetness and take them for our benefit? It is that we might not simply enjoy their comfort, but might be partakers of the divine nature, enjoying what we have in Christ, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, that it also aids us understanding what we have in the Lord, the promises that are only true for the people of God. It reminds us and therefore exhorts us to be a people who are separate. That we are a garden. We're not in the world. We're not like the world. We have been removed from it. So the promises, very often, and you will read for yourself if you read Spurgeon's checkbook, they are particular to the people of God. They are for the church. They are for those that are in Christ. And enjoy, therefore, these precious promises, exceeding great and precious promises. So, I wonder, are you enjoying them? Because what the Lord does then is He comes to see how we are enjoying them. How His church are, is, is flourishing amidst these promises. These words that come to us that are sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. He comes as I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. He's enjoying it too. He's enjoying His own word as it's reflected and evidenced in His own people. This is part of his fellowship with his church. And thirdly, the third pairing is, I have drunk my wine with my milk. Here he takes ownership of the principles of Christ in their life. We have seen the perfections of Christ, the promises of Christ. Here are the principles of Christ. Why do I say principles? Well, you have wine and milk. Now, milk, again, not to turn to it, but First Peter chapter 2, verse 2, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk, of the Word, that ye may grow thereby. So the Word of God is depicted as milk for its nourishment, its ability to strengthen and cause growth in the Christian. Wine, however, speaks of what? It speaks of the essence of the gospel. It speaks of the work of Christ. It speaks of the atonement, and it draws to our mind all that our Savior has done. So what is depicted here? In Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1, and the mingling of wine with milk is a reminder to us, beloved, that all the principles of the Word of God, all the commandments of the Word of God, everything that's taught to us in the Word of God must be seen in light of the gospel, of the atonement, of what Christ has done for us, so that we gain a balance, so that our message is not all law, 
It's not exclusively law where we lament and we consider, well, here I have to do better and it's all weighed on me. Nor is it all gospel where it reflects to us what Christ has done and we cut off everything else in terms of our responsibility before God. But it is the mingling of wine and milk. It is the pulling together of the principles, the milk of the Word, the teaching of Scripture, pulled together in light of the cross so that we understand both what we enjoy in Christ and the obligations that are given to us as the people of God. And Christ takes delight in this. He doesn't take delight in the way the Pharisees looked at the Word of God that was devoid of the wine. So they would drink the milk and consider the Word, dissect the Word, and know the Word to a certain degree, but he cannot enjoy that or participate in that. Nor does he drink of the fountain of licentiousness, where those who take the gospel as a license to sin and get drunk on the wine, thinking themselves that through the cross of Christ that brings absolutely no responsibility to the people of God. But it is with the mingling. I have drunk my wine with my milk. This he enjoys with his church. This he gives to his people. He takes delight. Not just in a people who claim the advantages of the gospel, but those who see then their response to it and grow by the milk of the word. You can have a very civil society, at least to some degree. You can have an ordered society that will take the word purely at face value without consideration of the gospel. And it will order a society. That's not enough. It doesn't make a people the people of God. And that was the mistake that Israel so often fell into. Thirdly, then, we have an appeal to pursue. We've seen an answer to prayer, an acknowledgement of possession. We have an appeal to pursue. Our Lord has taken possession of His church and everything in it, of the garden and all that's in it. It's my garden. You're my sister. You're my spouse. It's my myrrh, my spice. My honeycomb, my honey, my wine, my milk, it's all his. So therefore, having done that, he can then give a command, an instruction. Eat, O friends. Drink, yea, drink abundantly, O beloved. What does he mean? What's he saying to you? Christ here speaks not only to his bride, the beloved, but to his friends. Who are his friends? (laughs) Some consider this in light of John 15, verse 14. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. If that is the case, then the friends are reflective of the individual aspect of the church. That the beloved is the singular, the bride 
is the church broadly speaking, but we can see the church also reflected in the individual relationship they have as friends of the Lord. That's how some see it. That may be the case. Others refer or see friends, I should say, as the heavenly host. Christ, as he engages in fellowship with his church, his beloved, he also turns to the host of heaven, the angels, and says, O friends, eat, O friends. It's not entirely unfounded in the sense of angelic involvement in the gospel. They do not eat to their own salvation, but they participate in some fashion. We are told again in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, as Peter talks about the gospel being preached by the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, he then says, which things the angels desire to look into. The angels have this, this sense of being compelled to, to understand what's going on. That it is their desire, we might say, to receive an invitation from Christ to understand what he has done and the people for whom he has done it. We know that they are here in this place of worship. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul expects angels to attend public worship when he says, for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Power on her head. Signifying that she's under authority. That's the sense. Power and authority on her head. She has some symbol of authority on her because she has authority in her life. And so she's covering her God-given glory in the presence of the angels. as we worship. So they're here. <laughs> they're here. And they're paying way more attention than maybe you are. <laughs> and yet think of it. The message that's being communicated now, understanding the Word of God, has far more application to you than it does to them. This word has been given to you. Christ has been sacrificed for you. He is your Passover. Not the Passover of the angels. So it may be, it may be, the friends here, if they're distinct, eat, O oh friends. Christ invites the heavenly host to come and, and have some participation in the gospel. Maybe that's the case. Or there may be another way that I pondered over. Thought may be the case as I looked at it myself. You have to be careful with this. But I'm not afraid to share it with you. That when Christ says, eat, O friends, now understand that there's a certain sense in which no one, no one, who's outside of Christ is a friend of Christ. I realize that just as many of you do. You're outside of Christ why are you outside of Christ? Being outside of Christ, rejecting his call, makes you inevitably an enemy of Jesus Christ. Doesn't make you a friend. 
And yet at the same time, we know our Lord Jesus dealt mercifully to men in his communication of the gospel. That in his invitation to sinners, he was very tender towards them. And it may therefore be that this invitation, eat, O friends, is an invitation to others beyond the bride, not part of the church, not in the garden, an invitation to others, come and eat. Don't stand away from the feast of the gospel. One example, John 6, verse 31. I'm following. You may turn there if you like for yourself, but you have the feeding of the 5,000. A multitude of people, maybe 15,000 people or more, gather to receive the bread and the fish that was miraculously provided by Jesus Christ on that occasion, the following day, they're following him, they're curious, they're interested, and it seems a very good decision to follow him around if he provides for all your practical necessities. But they fail to see the point. But in doing so, Jesus Christ mercifully gives the sense of what the miracle was all about. He leaves them in no sense of ambiguity. They're meant to get it. And so, John 6, 31, our fathers did eat manna in the desert. This is what they're saying. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they know their Bibles. They know the milk of the Word. They're failing to see the wine. We know our fathers were fed in the wilderness. They did eat manna in the desert just like we have, just as we did yesterday. We were in a wilderness with nothing to eat, and yet there was provision, they said. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. This is what's happening now. He's giving you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. So that, that's, that's the gospel truth. There's the reality. There's it objectively. Jesus Christ is the bread from heaven sent down by the Father to give life to the world, but he doesn't leave it there. He gives an invitation. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth in me shall never thirst. If you want it, come. Come. You want, you want to eat of this bread by which you will never hunger again? You come to me, you will never hunger. You believe in me, you will never thirst. So in one sense, it could be a general invitation. Eat, O oh friends. Eat, O oh friends. <laughs> to you, outside of Christ, you have not repented or turned from your sin. You're not in Christ. You're not in fellowship with Christ. You're not walking with Christ. You're not enjoying Jesus Christ. You're not part of Christ. You don't love Christ. You're not trying to serve Christ. You don't give consideration to Christ. You know about him. You're well aware of who he is, but there isn't an intimacy. There isn't a friendship. There isn't a relationship. And he therefore says, eat, oh friends. Eat. Eat what? Eat Christ. 
as you take your meal this afternoon and you have to reach out and take it, maybe not with your hands, depending on what it is, <laughs> but you take it with utensils or with your hands, you take it and you eat it. No one has to tell you what to do. It's put in front of you. It's funny that, isn't it? For the most part, except when they're being awkward, children don't have to be taught or shown how to eat. And infants, infants, they just know. <laughs> they know. Do you know? Do you know how to simply take Christ? The way you will take your dinner this afternoon. Just reach out. Take it. Do you know how to do that? Just, just take Christ. Preacher, what does that mean? That means stop thinking you're good enough. That means stop resting in what you think will be sufficient when you stand before God on the day of judgment. That means stop bringing arguments that suggest your Bible reading, your praying, your growing up in America, your baptism, your attendance at church, your knowledge of the Bible. You stop considering that as sufficient to be in fellowship with God. It is not. You have to eat of Christ. You need to take him. You need to take him. And I can't, nor can your parents, stick the fork in it, as it were, and feed it to you. I'm doing my best this morning, but you have to take it. You have to take Christ. You can sit there stubbornly, as many an infant does at times, with your lips sealed and your will in resolve. But to what end? Eat, oh friends. Drink. Yea, drink abundantly, oh beloved. <laughs> Get drunk, church. That's what it's saying. Get drunk. Hang on a minute. Scripture's against drunkenness. Scripture explicitly says that they which do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But here is where you can drink and keep drinking and keep drinking until you're drunk on appreciation for the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. That you fill your mind and your heart and you govern your life and your affections by a knowledge and appreciation that he has done it all. That he has provided. And so, eat and drink. You have it here, the bread and the cup. It is set before you. 
This is my body. Take, eat. This is the cup of the New Testament in my blood. Drink. And you do it, what? In remembrance of me. As often as you do it. Get drunk on thinking on Christ. Oh, beloved, drink abundantly. You know, in all my preparation this, these days for the Reformation month, going back to the 16th century and reading and so on and so forth, <laughs> that's what they did, you know. That's what those reformers and early Puritans and so on, that's what they did. All the time that we give to entertainment and all the other things that fill our time, you know what they love to do? They just loved the Bible. They loved it. And I'll be dealing with it tonight a little bit. And some of the things that exhibited their fervent zeal and love for the Word. They got drunk on Scripture. On the Christ of Scripture. They were constantly drinking in the Word. They couldn't get enough. You know, there's a story told of one Puritan. With this, I'll close. Roaring John Rogers. <laughs> so if you think I get animated, you haven't quite called me or given me the nickname Roaring <laughs> yet, at least as far as I'm aware. It hasn't come to my ears. But that was how he was known. Roaring John Rogers. And he would get animated Thomas Goodwin records his first experience of going to sit under the ministry of Mr. Rogers. Going there and sitting as Mr. Rogers dealt with how the people in that day were handling the Word of God. And what John Rogers did was he took on the persona as God. And he said, to, as God, he said, I am taking away my word because you don't read it. And then he apparently mimicked. He got the Bible, went off, walked off. And then he impersonated the people. No, Lord! No, Lord! Kill our children. Burn our houses. But do not take from us your word. And then taking on the place of God, he says, okay, I will give it to you again. This was to a people who were largely much more given over to the Word than we are. Oh, friends, eat, drink abundantly, oh, beloved. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer.
Gracious God, have mercy on us, we pray. We thank Thee for Thy precious Word. But we do not thank Thee enough. Help us to value what Thou hast given that in the pages of Holy Scripture we see Thy loveliness and we see Thy Son. We thank Thee for this. Help us to eat and to drink of Him as we come to this table. May it please Thee to feast and strengthen our souls and give us a greater appetite for Thee. In Jesus' name, we ask these things.